we can speak intellectually. We can't speak knowledgeably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna find a way to splice that into the episode. <laughs> I, I've I've thought a lot about that in my life lately. Oh man, <laughs> there's a I vast sound good. <laughs> I sound intellectual. I don't know if it's knowledgeable. Oh man, but yeah. So okay, well with that. Unless you have some notes, unless you have something you want to say before we get going, I can just bring us into the episode. Bring us on in. And I'm going to bring us in by kind of continuing what we're doing here. I, I, I really want to start the episode just – I say we just shoot the breeze for five minutes, and then I'll pick whatever works to, to, to bring us into it. So Sounds good. All right. Here's the show. This is Sleepless. A show exploring all the things that keep us up at night. Your hosts, Connor Dudley and Austin Graham, bring these ceaseless wanderings of the mind to the conversation table in hopes that we might find some answers and get a little bit of sleep. My friend, we have a big show today, and I'm going to begin this big show by asking you to share a little bit of your life experience with me. I'm asking you about a memory, a cherished family story that you might have, or maybe it's something that's been told again and again over the years, or something that you recall to mind, some moment in your childhood that you look back on fondly. Tell me that story, man. I want to hear it from you. Yeah, I think that's, um, I I think there's a couple. I don't, I don't have too many. I I mean, I have a very, I had a very good childhood. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Um, But one that sticks out to me is uh and this is one that i've told many many times over my parents have probably told a couple times and my brother's probably gonna kill me once he hears this but uh (laughs) when we were younger i lived in california and so we we would go to disneyland a lot we'd go there probably you know and over a dozen times throughout my childhood and so we would drive all the time and in the in the mid 2000s when the when the dodge caravan was was that van to have you know i think now it's like the plymouth i'm 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 van shopping lately (laughs) um (laughs) um we would uh we took out the middle seat one time and we put a blow-up mattress in there and some blankets so my brother and i could just play video games and just roll around in the in the car while we were driving to disneyland probably wasn't the safest idea but when we uh on the way there, I just remember because my my brother's always been a talker. He talks a lot. And he asks he asks a lot of questions, which is totally fine. Um, but I remember this one trip in particular. I, the way I've told this story is um, that he talked so much that by the time we got to Disneyland, which is about a seven hour drive from where we lived, um, his voice was hoarse the entire time we were traveling, and that's the way I remember this. And and um, it's it's just a funny memory from my childhood. <laughs> Is your brother older than you? No, he's he's younger by uh, three and a half years. Okay, I can still work with that. I I have some trickery afoot. I have some questions for you. So I'm trying to figure out what I can bend to my will in your story here. What video games did you guys play? What consoles were you using? On this trip in particular, uh, Nintendo. We used the, uh, n- the Nintendo Color in particular, um, I was probably playing either Pokemon Yellow or um, I was a big Mario fan, and mm. I still am to this day. Um, it was one of those two games, I think. Okay. Do you feel like you can personally remember this event? Yes, I think I can. Okay. 
can you picture the different scenes that you walked me through? The the van, the seats laid down, the Game Boy Color, getting to Disneyland, having that conversation with your brother, noticing that his voice was all raspy from the the sweet nothings you guys kept speaking to each other on the trip. <laughs> Let's change the phrasing here. <laughs> well, I say it in jest because I've got two older brothers and I know that it's anything but sweet nothings. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, Dude, it's my sweet turn. A- Dad. Sweet annoyances. Yeah. <laughs> He's been on it all day. It's my turn. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Do you feel like this this image of this memory that you have in your brain, that y- you can picture all of it, these individual scenes? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty vivid. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to pick on a couple items and ask you to consider what if they were wrong. What if you were wrong about the way that you recalled them? Okay. And I'm going to go straight in for the kill on this one. I'm going pretty big with the way that I'm going to bend your memory here. Okay. What if you found out today irrefutably that your memory was not just skewed a little bit, but majorly, majorly screwed up in this way? What if you learned that, let's say you weren't actually on the vacation where the seats were laid down, the video games were played, this is from a later vacation that your brother took with just your parents. And his voice being raspy was actually from him being sick that year, whenever they went. And this story has just been told by him, by your parents, over the years to where you actually came to believe you were on that vacation, that you were there with the seats down. I got to imagine the way that you're feeling right now is, dude, no. Like, I was there. I know I was there. I was I was there. <laughs> yeah, this, this was me. This is my story. <laughs> but you did admit that this story has been told by your parents and by your brother at least a little bit, right, through the years? Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. So I'm asking you to suspend belief for here for a second. And what? how do you think you would handle it if you did learn somehow irrefutably that it is as I described and not as you described? Have you ever seen Inception? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'd be an Inception moment for me. <laughs> in, w- in what way? Uh, I, I think it would be because um, in that movie, everything was so vivid. You know, everything, you were in a dream, but the, the dreams were like reality, right? Yeah. And so, like, it would be very troubling for me. And, and as you're talking, I can literally feel myself being troubled by what you're saying. Like, mm-hmm. no, dude, like this happened, you know, this is, this is my story, you know? And so I think, um, I would be very dissettled if this came back as a false narrative. Okay. You know, man, I've worked in a number of retail environments, one of which is banking you're familiar with, one of which is food service. And I, I've come to the conclusion that there are a handful of things in people's lives you don't mess with. You don't mess with their money and you don't mess with their food. That's how you get angry customers. And I'm starting to think that you don't mess with people's memories either. I like that. (laughs) The very notion that our memories could be not as we recall them is not only deeply unsettling, but most likely true. Especially those memories that sort of live in our collective infamy as families, right? Or the stories that you, you come back to year after year. The one for me is this camping trip I was on when I was very young. And when I say this story has been retold, 
it's every single Thanksgiving. It's like clockwork. I'm just waiting for it to come up. We're on this camping trip. Big storm hits. My grandparents have a camper. There's The rest of us have tents. We're sleeping in these tents. And everyone is getting together into the camper. And the rain is so bad that it's literally filling up the bottom like six inches of our tent. Just water pouring in, flooding the whole campsite. While everyone is in the camper, warm, safe, I'd been forgotten. So I'm sitting out in the tent with water up to my ears. <laughs> just like, where is everybody? You know, hoping that it's a nightmare. And the oh. kicker to that story is always that my dad remembered to bring the dog in. Because oh. it was our first vacation with this new puppy. And at some point, they all look around, do a head count, and they're like, you know, it's almost the Home Alone moment. Like, Kevin! Yeah. Except it was, where's Connor? <laughs> And so my uncle runs out like a garbage sack, just slings me over his shoulders and brings me back into the camper. And, you know, they can laugh at that now just because we're so far removed from it. But at the time it was like, you jerks. (laughs) (laughs) And so even telling that story now, even though I've admitted I've heard it and I've told it a hundred times over, it just brings me joy to, to relive that, even though it was traumatic at the time. But to think that maybe that wasn't the camping trip that my dog went with us on, or maybe it was my brother that was left. That's highly unlikely because we do have a lot of eyewitnesses and, you know, for lack of a better word, testimony about this event. There were about 15 people in the camper, but all the camper. Yeah, it was. (laughs) But all the details of this have really been refined and fine tuned over the years to where doesn't matter who tells that story, we have a way that it's told. And that, to me, is a little suspicious. The problem of the day, the thing that has honestly kept me up, and so this is certified, certified episode here, I am, like, deeply, deeply bothered by the fact that our memory is as fickle as it's been proven to be and as untrustworthy as it seems to be. So it seems that those who have actually studied human memory, cognitive psychology, those kind of people are not all that impressed with the reliability of our brain to store historical information as it happened. So the way this played out for me one night was, you know, I thought back on this specific memory and with that notion in mind that maybe it wasn't 100% accurate, found myself just kind of going through the catacomb of different memories that I have all these cherished childhood memories and all the places that I went all the friends that I spent time with and I had this burning question like what if that's not true what if that's not true and it it turned my confidence in my historical narratives to just dust <laughs> you know like it really became a, a an existential quest for me to man what like who am I (laughs) if I am just this like collection of memories and (laughs) this like this product of the lifetime that I believe that I've lived how have I really gotten to where I am today um and that that's a bit over the top I think just 
but, but that's what happens when your head hits the pillow, you know. That's 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 the problem that we both face is that we're not thinking rationally at this time of night. We're having these deep philosophical existential questions, you know. <laughs> um and we and we process them in ways that we wouldn't in the light of day. So, do you it sounds to me based on the story you shared and my poking at it that this is something that you're not exactly comfortable with either. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. Um, I've, I don't think this has kept me up at night, but I've long been contemplative. I think that's, I think that'd be the word of the issues of memory and recall. Um, like you, and I'm sure we'll get into this later on. I have a horrible memory. Um, mm. I cannot remember things to save my life, and I that has affected my attention to detail. I think, um, which is a whole nother issue in my life. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I think this, this has been something that has troubled me for a long time. I've come to some resolve with it just through study and, and, um, reflection, but it is a, it it leaves you unsettled, right? Hmm. The fact that you, that certain things can be recalled or remembered incorrectly. If, if someone plants it or, or whatever, you know, I think it's an unsettling feeling. Dude, you raise a really interesting point there. So by admission, you're a forgetful person. Maybe your short-term memory as we might refer to it, isn't the best. And I empathize on a very deep level there. I often refer to myself as a goldfish and my wife would agree with that, that my short-term memory is pretty much useless. And you seem like a guy who's aware, self-aware of that. I certainly am aware of my forgetfulness. So why are we so confident in those older stories, those things that actually happened further into the distant past? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I I would think, I mean, we we all have, and this gets into a kind of a rabbit trail but we all have a narrative we tell ourselves right we, on a daily basis we have a narrative that we say hey this is my story this is a story hmm. of me of my experiences and um it, it's a it's a point of connection right i mean we tell stories to connect with people that i think that's why we can recall older memories so well and we want to share those older memories so that we can connect yeah well, and that's a good point you make, that some of it doesn't matter. There's no harm in one of your details being off. It may be uncomfortable, but any harm that's done is really just to my own psyche. Like, man, I really have this way that I remember it, and it's important to me that it happened that way. Because maybe it's an experience that shaped me in some way. And there's nothing I can do about it unless I were to purposely seek out someone to verify or correct my story, right? Um, But for most of my memories, I'm not going to go there. So does it really matter? Not a whole lot, but in some cases, yeah, it does does matter to me. And this is the thing that, you know, caused all the, the tossing and turning. So in a little bit, as you know, we've invited someone on the show who is gracious enough to give us, you know, a little bit of her time she is the expert of experts on this. So I'm not going to belabor a ton of time trying to unpack the actual science of memory because 
what do we know? <laughs> We're just guys who are trying to process it, not necessarily educate on it. We'll link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. By the way. By the way. <laughs> no. I have to tell you this. Please always keep saying we'll link it in the show notes because I'm not linking stuff in the show notes. That's perfect. I love that. <laughs> Some, um, you know someone's going to be mad at that. You said you'd link it in the show notes. Where's yes. it at? It's there. I don't know what you're talking about. Like we put it in the show notes. Just pretend that we're – I don't know. I, I love it because at least once an episode you've said we'll link in the show notes. <laughs> I am never going to do that. I'm never spending a second more after post-production to <laughs> cite our sources. That's hilarious. So they either get cited live or we're plagiarizing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm not going to try to educate, but what I do want to spend a few minutes doing is testing our memory. I've personally gone through these exercises and they they were fun. I'm going to try to lead you in as blind as can be. <clears throat> but I'm going to ask you first, we have we have two exercises here. And the first is just going to be a series of seemingly very random questions. And then we'll, we'll go back over them, okay? Are you ready to be my lab rat here for a moment? I am ready. Yes. Yes, you are. Excellent. But really, no, you're not. I'm hoping you're not. <laughs> It'll be way more entertaining if you're not. Okay. Series of random questions. These are going to be rapid fire. Okay. Go for it. Name a children's book that focused on a family of bears. Bernstein Bears. Say it again. Bernstein Bears. Okay. You know what's really funny? Pause real quick. As soon as you said children's book, literally... Before I even heard bears, Bernstein bears came to my brain. No kidding. Dead serious. That was the weirdest thing. I'm definitely leaving that in the episode because it's juicy. It's a juicy yeah. detail uh, that we will certainly benefit from keeping in. One more time, very slowly, said the name of that book. The Bernstein Bears. Love it. Love it so much. This is already off to a great start. Okay. <clears throat> Describe the Fruit of the Loom logo. I mean, I, I don't know particulars of what fruit are in there. I think there's some grapes. I want to say some oranges and bananas. I think that's, I think if I recall correctly, I think that's what's in there. Um, I don't think it's in a bowl. I think it's just sitting out like on like a, like nothing. I think it's just hanging there. Okay. What does the Monopoly guy look like? Describe him. Describe his attire. He's wearing a black suit. Um, I don't know the name of the kind of suit he's wearing. Uh, he wears a monocle and a top hat. Has a mustache. And um, is always running somewhere. <laughs> Excellent. There's an old cartoon about a family living in prehistoric time. Fred and Wilma. Flintstone. Say it slower. Flintstone. Excellent. What movie character said, Luke, I am your father? Darth Vader. Are you a Lord of the Rings fan? Huge. What does Gandalf say before he falls into the deep with the Balrog? Run, you fools. You've, you've told me beforehand that you're not super familiar with Hamble Lecter, Silence of the Lambs. 
Is there any one singular line from the movie that you've maybe heard in pop culture, maybe you've seen quoted that you can think of? No, I literally, okay. I, I, I know the, the premise, but I don't know anything about it whatsoever. Okay. I will, I will answer this question just because I think it'll be interesting to some of our fans, but, um, Ooh, in my mind, I just promoted listeners to fans. We now we have fans now, Austin. We have fans officially, <laughs> apparently because I just called them that. <laughs> okay. That's all the questions I have for you. We're going to work back through each of these and I will say you did pretty bad. Uh, you wow. did, yeah, you did pretty bad, which is good for me. It went exactly how I wanted it to. So, you ready for this? Go for it. <laughs> there is no Bernstein Bears. There's not even a Berenstein Bears, which is the more commonly cited wrong title. It was always the Berenstain Bears, like a stain on a shirt. I'm, I'm going to challenge you. How's it spelled? S-T-A-I-N. Is it really? It is. <laughs> I'm fact checking. Our, our listeners, I was gonna say, our listeners can't see this, but Austin is now pulling up his phone. Like, dude, I there's no way. It is. Wow, I've always thought there was an e in there. Yep. I, always, a... I also always thought they were Jewish. I think. I think the author is. Why a did Jew. you think oh, that? Because. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, because they're Jewish. I, I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh, because the name? No, the the author's last. Let me see here. Yeah, Stan and Jan Bernstein. I'm pretty sure they were Jewish. I just love that you. Th- I just love that that crossed your mind. Like as a kid, I was never, I was never curious about the authors of the Bears' social or religious heritage. That's hilarious. Yeah, the the uh, <laughs> the, 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 the the author, the man, was Jewish, and his wife was Episcopalian. How about that? In case you guys are interest interested, yeah, so that's from Wikipedia. You... My goodness. So I'm going to be fact-checking you. If I'm so wrong, I'm going to be fact-checking you. Here's the thing about this little exercise. I will name it when we're done, and you can go find many a support groups when it comes to it. And every single one of these that I I found, I had to fact-check. Like, there's no way. There's no way. Okay. The Fruit of the Loom logo is the perhaps the only one that you are correct on. A lot of people, when they picture the Fruit of the Loom logo, they include mentally an image of the cornucopia, that little, you know, like wicker basket yeah. thing with the fruit pouring out, it's mm-hmm. not there at all. And I imagine some are going to listen to the show and go, well, yeah, yeah, it is. It's really not. It's just fruit that is kind of, like you said, just kind of hovering. It's kind of like sitting out. There is no cornucopia. What's really interesting about this one is a lot of people, when they're presented with both options, the actual logo, the way it's always been, and the logo with the cornucopia, and asked which one is accurate, a lot of people pick the cornucopia, like most people do. Interesting. There's something in our brains that adds that in. Okay? The Monopoly guy, he does not have a monocle. Really? He does not. This is one I had to look up. I went into the office, I pulled Monopoly off the shelf, and went, huh. (laughs) Because you always thought you had a monocle also? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, he wears a monocle. That old cartoon about Fred and Wilma living in prehistoric times, a lot of people say Flintstones. They are the Flint Stones. My whole childhood's a lie. Yeah, I know, man. This is. You're going to tell me it's Tom and Harry and not Tom and Jerry next. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. 
Luke, I am your father. I This one was kind of unfair the way that I asked it because I didn't give you an opportunity to refute it. He never says, Luke, I am your father. He says, no, I am your father. Uh. And so that's not fair to you. But if you ask, the other way I could have asked it is, what is the big reveal of Star Wars? You know, yeah. the original trilogy, what is the moment that everyone quotes? And most people are going to say, Luke, I am your father. Yeah. And and really, he doesn't name him. We put that in there because without the context of the scene, we feel like we have to include his name. Yeah. My best guess. But in conversation, he's actually responding to a statement that Luke just made. So he's like, no, that's not accurate. What you just said is wrong. <laughs> no, I am your father. By admission, a huge Lord of the Rings fan. So as I as I said as I said what I responded, another phrase came to mind. Oh, don't get it wrong twice, Austin. Don't get it wrong twice. Be very sure about what you're gonna say. Because I I remember being confused about this one day. I want to say in the movies he actually said, "Why are you fools?" Mm. Yeah, you got it wrong twice. Okay, I guess I did. It's hmm. fly, you fools. Fly, you fools. Oh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense, man. Yeah. I like. I am. I'm even a Silmarillion reader. Like, I am a huge I trust you, man. Lord of the Rings fan. That's crazy. Interesting. I'm gonna trust that Run, you fools, is somewhere in the depths of Tolkien's actual written. Lord of the Rings lore, and that you're Somewhere more knowledgeable deep. than I am, but at least in the movie, it's fly, you fools. That's funny. The last one that I mentioned was Silence of the Lambs. If you ask what is the most iconic line from the movie, almost everyone is going to, and, and I studied film, and I would have answered this too, and I'm ashamed to say, hello, Clarice. <laughs> I've heard it. I, yeah. Now that you say it, I've heard it, but I... Hello, Clarice. He never says it, ever in the movie. And that was one that I had to look up. So how do you feel? Let's just do a little debrief. How do you feel knowing that so many of these were just wrong? I, um, they, it is troubling. It, 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 I don't even know if troubling. I'm not, I don't even think I've hit the stage interesting of troubling. Even, you know, it's interesting. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting that... The, I think I think one point though is that I I got I got the majority of the thought correct in in most of them I don't think I boy you're giving yourself a lot of credit for something you absolutely butchered I know I know I am I am I am not <laughs> but it it is troubling it is troubling okay. I'll just leave it at that I take the win in that you had to pull up in your phone to fact check me it bothered as soon as you, you enough said to be like stain. yeah. <laughs> Bothered you enough that you're like, no, 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 no. I have to figure it out. That's what that's what this is all about. So what we're talking about is the Mandela effect. And it gets its name from a lot of people. You know, Nelson Mandela, huge revolutionary, South Africa. A lot of people have this memory of him dying in prison back in the 80s, which he didn't. The collective memory is a strange thing. Like, lots of people remember this happening. But really, what they're most likely remembering is... When 
Some footage was released of him in prison, or maybe him just going to prison. He never died in prison. He actually got out and continued his revolution, you know, made made a huge change in the country. And so this is named after him, like, basically our collective memory becomes this fuzzy thing where we either can't remember something well or we even assign false memory to it, okay? That's test number one. Hopefully you're not too bloody and bruised yet. Bring it. Okay. The second one is less question-focused and much more of just a simple memory game, okay? Oh, great. <laughs> so do you, by chance, have a pen and paper in front of you? Can I you grab do. one? Yep. Got it right here. Okay. I'm going to read you 15 words. Okay. I'm going to ask you, do not write them down until I say... Write them down. Okay. That will be after I've read the 15 words and given just a few minutes worth of silence. Okay? Okay. Your words are bed, pillow, dream, dark, drift, pajamas, nighttime, deep, blanket, snooze, nap, peaceful, Comfortable, slumber, rest. And now you may write down all the words that you can remember. So do you want me to write them down or say? say write, them? write them down. Okay. It's great radio. It's great radio that you are writing something <laughs> that the listeners cannot see or hear you do. I might just add like a little dead space. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And whenever you feel like you've got as many as you can definitively remember, just let me know. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think I've I think I've hit my max. How many do you have? Nine. Not bad. I would like you to read those (laughs) nine words. Bed, pillow, dream, slumber, nighttime, peace. Blanket, deep. Oh, I had blanket twice. <laughs> I have eight. <laughs> Is that all? That of them? Was it. I have yeah. been counting. Okay. I want you to turn to a new page, so you cannot see that original list. And I'm going to read you nine words, or sorry, ten words. Only nine of which were actually on. So awesome! What just happened was. I went through a series of lists of words and I kept asking you, you know, what what words were on the original lists, yada, yada. What's interesting to me is the word I was trying to get you to remember being on that list was sleep. I never read the word sleep. And I was trying to implant a memory in your brain that I had used the word sleep by lying to you. I did lie to you. This was not a fair experiment. <laughs> I told you that Here's a list of 10 words, only nine of which were on, but actually only eight of which were. I introduced the word hammock, which was like totally outlandish. Stars, you know, it was totally outlandish. But then I added the word sleep, which was a lot more similar to the other words, right? What's so interesting to me is not only did you... So first, you picked up a sleep as not being on the original list. You told me at some point it was not on there. But by the end... 
you said yes, it was on the original list. That's funny. So I gave you a false memory there. What's also interesting is that out of the three very false and obvious words, hammock, stars, couch, by the end, you said stars was on the original list too. I noticed that now. (laughs) That's funny. That was not even my intention. I mean, that really just goes to show how fickle our memories can be whenever they're purposefully manipulated. What's really interesting about why I added stars in is because um, I don't know if you're going to have this. The We're obviously not going to talk about this, but in, in the replay of the list, you messed up the first time. Okay. But I, I couldn't remember what you'd said. Right. And then you repeated it and included stars again. Uh-huh. And so my brain said, oh, that must have been on the original one that he mentioned and then he added another one i was looking for the similarities in what you had already stated yeah so and and i realized about that point that you had done that and i was like "Ooh, can i get stars in there too like that's hilarious and at one point i decided to go away from sleep because you it seemed like you had definitively decided sleep was not on the original list. I'm like, well, maybe I can just shift gears here and get him to believe stars was there. And you, you picked both by the end. It just made me so happy. That's but hilarious. The point of this, Austin, is, and I, and I hope you don't feel like I've insulted your intelligence, it, it's, everyone falls for this. I mean, those who don't know too much about human psychology, you know? Or yeah. they saw it coming 100 miles away. Um, I fell for this. My wife fell for this. Uh, every YouTube video where they talk about this, you know, they fall for this. And what what this is called is the Dees Rodiger McDermott paradigm. That's some of the names of the people who put this test together. And the idea is that I can I can wiggle in, I can work in something to your memory that wasn't there. This is maybe fun in the sense of this exercise, but it can also be very problematic in the sense, in the case of maybe an eyewitness testimony where someone is on trial. Someone who maybe during their initial interview with the police when they're providing a statement, they gathered some information that now works into their memory. You know, maybe after they left the scene of the crime, they saw someone at the next place they went. And that person was then burned into their memory. And when it comes to the lineup, they pick the wrong person. There's any number of ways where someone's memory can be manipulated to include a memory that did not actually happen, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And for that, we get to hear from Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who, look, if you're listening right now, go Google that name. What you're going to find is that she's a total hotshot. She's got a TED Talk, which means, you know, she's totally made it. <laughs> uh, her her resume is a mile long, and she is distinguished. She is a researcher. She's the real deal. And so to grab a few minutes of her time is, is really an honor. And with that, I'm going to roll the interview. Hello? Hi, is this Dr. Loftus? Speaking. Hi, this is Connor Dudley. Oh, hi. Hey, I'm so sorry for that scheduling hiccup. I think it's no coincidence we're talking about memory today. (laughs) Oh, no problem. It's okay. Austin, do I have you on the line as well? Yes, I am. I am here. All right. Dr. Loftus, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. um, Austin and I have both been enamored by the work that you do. Uh, You're leading professor, psychologist, researcher, and 
author of numerous books on human memory, and you've provided expert testimony in, it looks like, hundreds of court cases. Is that right? <laughs> uh, yes, that's correct, and thank you for those nice comments. Oh, sure, sure. I Again, we're just absolutely fascinated by what it is that you do. Um, and on top of all those credentials and awards, you're nice enough to humor us today on this, so we, we really do appreciate it. Um, I, I'm coming to you today with a bit of a problem <laughs> that I'm hopeful you can solve or at least provide the kind of insight that I need to work through it. Um, I indicated to you that on this show we try to tackle those burning questions that keep us up at night. And in okay. this case... Honest to goodness, this is this is real. <laughs> I have actually lost sleep over the very ideas that my memories, even those that I would swear by, could possibly be inaccurate. And one night in particular, I, w I sort of combed through my mind some of those cherished memories that I could bring to the top of my mind, and I asked myself the question, is it really possible that these events that are in my brain that I feel like I can vividly recall didn't actually play out the way I remember. And if that is true, how is it possible that these memories could be fabricated? That's why I'm calling you. That's what I'm turning over to you. Can you just shed some light on how that sort of thing is possible? And how likely is it that these cherished memories of mine may not be 100%? I'm not sure I can give you a probability, but I can definitely <laughs> talk to you about how people develop false memories. And in the experiments that I do, we actually deliberately try to distort somebody's memory. We, we expose them to some suggestive information. Uh, we'll say something like, we talk to your mother and your mother says this happened to you. Try to think about it and remember it when it, perhaps it's a completely made-up experience. And, and through these suggestive techniques, we can get lots and lots of, you know, ordinary, healthy uh, people to remember things differently from the way they really were or to even remember entire events that didn't happen. So, so that's one way that people... Uh, develop false memories, and one way that we've been able to see it in kind of a, a controlled uh, experimental situation. But that's just one way. Now, in these situations where you're controlling the environment, you're saying you are injecting some rhetoric that manipulates or creates a, a memory that is utterly false, but I, I imagine that your hope here is to, or at least the hypothesis, that not just in these controlled experiments, but by and large, we are developing false memories all the time. Is that accurate? Yes. I, I, I'm interested in studying the, the, the process, uh, how it is you can uh, just plant a little seed of suggestion and uh, see it grow into something that feels like an actual memory. Um, out there in the real world, we get exposed to suggestive information uh, when we talk to other people or if we get uh, interrogated by somebody who even inadvertently suggests something to us, uh, if we see news coverage about an event that we might have experienced, you know, all of these situations provide an opportunity for new information to uh, contaminate somebody's, uh, somebody's memory. 
That is so troubling to me. <laughs> well, I, I I hate to keep you up at night, but I think it, it, it's better to 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 be aware of this and and uh, and most of the the fiction that we have in memory is is uh, probably doesn't matter very much. I mean, if I tell you that you know I had a a burger last night instead of chicken, uh, you don't know whether that's true or not. Um, maybe I've just made a mistake and I don't get caught in my in my mistake. But when it comes to somebody's liberty, like they're being accused of a crime hmm. that maybe they didn't do, or they're being accused of causing an accident because uh, somebody remembered that the traffic light was red when it was really green, um, then these false memories matter very much. I think that's more in the realm of what I'm I'm trying to explore. I, I agree with you that the little slips of my mind, you know, the things that my wife can laugh at, those don't bother me so much. I've accepted that I'm a relatively forgetful person. I'm looking more at those moments, like you said, that do matter. I want to ask you if you have any, you know, top of the mind situations where you can think of, you know, this really did matter. It was important for you to get involved. Um, you know, people's lives were at stake. There was someone's freedom at stake. Do you have any situations like that you can talk about? Well, in in these court cases, of course, these sort of situations arise a lot when when somebody who perhaps was a, an actual victim of a crime uh, ends up identifying the wrong person as the perpetrator of the crime, and an innocent person. Uh, ends up being prosecuted and then convicted and, and put in prison for something they didn't do. Uh, and we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples in our society where this has happened. I would... The God's honest truth is that this, is occur- this has happened to me as well. Now, when I was a teenager, <laughs> I a friend bought a cookie for me at Casey's General Store. And later on that day, while I was playing a baseball game, the cops showed up and they took me to the station and I was identified as the one who passed a counterfeit bill. Now my friend, he, he, it wasn't his bill either. It had been given to him earlier that day by someone who was actually counterfeiting it. But it was very, very troubling that the cashier at that general store pointed me out and said, absolutely, that's the guy. I mean, the Secret Service showed up for crying out loud. This is very troubling. Oh my gosh! Well, this is fascinating that that you actually had this the this experience, and so you you know you have that firsthand you know deep knowledge of what it feels like to be frightened uh, by an accusation. I mean, think how horrifying for an innocent person, and and. Most of us can only kind of imagine what it might be like, but to actually experience it is uh, is, is a deeper experience. It, it is, and of course mine at the end of the day was a bit silly. It was, you know, the, the gentleman who actually passed the bill, my friend at the time, he was a, he's a good guy, and he immediately said to the officer, hey, I'm actually the one that paid for that item. So, no, Connor isn't. <laughs> the one that passed the bill. And then, of course, he indicated that the bill was given to him by someone else. Um, so he wasn't taking 
to fall for it, but you know, he exonerated me. Of course, the stakes are much higher when we're talking about some of the cases that you have dealt with, whether it be, I mean, many sexual assault cases, uh, murder cases even. Is that accurate? Oh, yes. Um, Armed robbery, all kinds of uh, situations. But you don't even need to look at at just the cases that that I've been involved in. Um, There's uh, I don't know if you know about the Innocence Project yeah. in New York, where you know more than 350 people have been found to be wrongfully convicted because DNA testing ultimately showed they were actually innocent. And at my university, the University of California, Irvine, we have the National Registry of Exonerations with over 2,000 cases of people who have been exonerated of of, of crimes that they were charged with, convicted of, for example. That is incredible. Now, is your approach, when you're called to provide some kind of expert testimony on the reliability or, I suppose, the lack thereof of human memory, do you approach it in, I'm just going to tell you what I know about how false memories are developed, or do you take a more aggressive stance like, I don't think that other testimony is reliable? You know, how far do you take it? No, no, we, I, you know, you can't, without independent corroboration, sure. know, you know, reliably whether you're dealing with a genuine memory or one that is a product of imagination or suggestion or some other process. So I can only really say, if these memories aren't real, where could they have come from? How could this person be thinking they remember uh, this experience uh, in the the detail and with the confidence and with the emotion that they're expressing if it didn't happen. And then I might be able to identify some of the suggestive things that went on in the particular case and to point those out. But, uh, you know, another thing that I'm often doing in these court cases is opposing experts uh, are sometimes trying to fob off theories uh, and basically, in one way or another, say they think the memories are real and uh, and advance ideas about memory that are not supported or are even contradicted by the scientific evidence. And sometimes I'll be able to point that out. That makes sense. Now, in my case, of course, I know that you're just learning about this uh, event for the first time, but I'm just curious to hear what you might infer what could have possibly happened in the I think it was like 20 minutes between the time I was at that general store and you know my my friend and I were there both together what could have possibly happened for her to say that that other gentleman is the one that passed the bill when I never went up to the register I'm not even sure she saw me well I, I you know I'd have to know a little bit about the test that uh how was the test done with this clerk? Was it a six-pack? Were six photographs shown, and she picked one? Uh, what kind of instruction was given? Uh, you know, was it a cross-racial identification where you have an eyewitness of one race trying to identify a stranger of a different race? There are all kinds of factors that could be contributing to this particular mistake. Gotcha. I I think all of those are certainly possible. It was very much a 
uh, quick and dirty version of the identification test. He pulled us out of the cruiser and said, point to one of them. <laughs> so, oh, really? Uh, so it was just the two of you? And, uh, I believe that the third gentleman who was with us that day, who eventually was actually caught as the one counterfeiting the bills, was there with us. So I correct myself. It was the three of us that day. Oh, okay. So, well, that's interesting. So all three of you are presented to this. That's a very unusual procedure, and that's not an ideal procedure <laughs> for for conducting a, a you know a good test of identification. I will relay that to the local It PD. reminds me a little bit of what happened in the Duke lacrosse rape case where uh, an alleged victim claimed that she was raped by three uh, Duke lacrosse players who were Caucasian. And the, the police ended up showing this victim all of the Caucasian lacrosse players and basically... Any three she picked became the defendant. That was a very bad procedure. What is a better way to do that, if you don't mind me asking? Well, you you want to have only one suspect per lineup or photo lineup. Uh, you want to have uh, a, a good instruction to the witness, something like, the, the, you know, the perpetrator. This may or may not includes a perpetrator, it's just as important to exonerate the innocent as to identify the guilty person. You want to take hmm. pressure off uh, the witness to, to pick someone, anyone. Uh, there, there are lots of recommended procedural details that are associated with uh, a better memory test. Gotcha. Can you actively measure the reliability of a memory without recorded evidence of the event do we do you have processes that you know you can fall on that say i i think we're at i think this memory might be the real deal you know because testimony is such a big part of our legal system and an oral tradition uh, in itself we we rely so much on just what we've been told or what we can see uh, in the media and the news is there any way that we can kind of weed through what may be a false memory and what can, you know, be certified? Well, uh, not easily. Okay. I, I, I do sometimes get a call from an attorney who will, you know, give me the facts, of the, the, the brief rendition of the facts of the case. Um, and I have on occasion said, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure that a memory expert can help you very much hmm. here. When they tell me that the two people spent a long time together, uh, that the identification occurred spontaneously, you know, a few hours later, there was no bad police uh, procedure or, or suggestive procedure. It was the same race identification. Um, you can conceive of a set of facts where there, there are not a lot of problematic factors present. Gotcha. But even still, even still, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be 100% accurate. Right, and that's not what you're out to prove anyway, whether it's totally accurate or totally false. You're just providing what you know about human memory and how we cognitively develop our memories. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And perhaps, I suppose, what what could have happened between the event and the testimony that you know introduced some level of misinformation. Right, and, and, and lots of times 
lots of things happen hmm. that end up uh, distorting what a witness remembers. There's a, there are other psychologists who like to use the analogy to trace evidence. Um, you know, you have you, you find some blood at the scene. Well, it matters what happens to that blood, whether it gets contaminated over over the next week or two before it's tested. And same thing with memory. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Again, these are the sort of things that I, I wish they didn't trouble me personally, because I know that I'm not in any kind of legal trouble. <laughs> at least for now. <laughs> but I have, in kind of circling back to, I have these cherished family memories that I'm getting closer to accepting or at least entertaining the thought that perhaps they are fabrications of, you know, many years worth of us retelling the stories and, you know, someone else's perspective on that event. Um, I'm thinking of one where we were out at a family camping trip and it flooded and everyone went in the trailer, but they forgot me in the tent. And so, you know, it's a laugh. It's a joke that gets told every Thanksgiving. But can I really rely on that given that it's just been told over and over and we're so far separated from the event? Well, I, I can't, you know, I can't say one, right. one way or another really in the absence of, of some kind of external corroboration. I can only say that sometimes... Um, personal memories, you know, do get distorted a little bit. Sometimes they get distorted a lot. And uh, there are many examples where um, siblings will hijack a, a, one of their brother's or sister's memories and start saying that it happened to them when it really happened to the sibling. That can be quite irritating when, when it's your memory if somebody else hijacks it. But But that's another example of how you can start to hear something uh, and then come to believe that maybe it happened to you. Well, this is the famed Brian Wilson situation, right? Well, uh, I mean, Brian Williams. Brian, the, sorry, yes, Brian Williams, the journalist. Well, <laughs> it, now that's a very interesting. That's a very interesting case that I've, I've you know, included in some of my my speeches because it's so interesting. He, uh, he, you know, he claimed that he was in a helicopter that was hit by a missile uh, when he was, you know, flying in Iraq or, or wherever he was. And, in fact, um, it, it ended up that there was proof that that hadn't happened. Uh, and what what did happen is that he arrived on the scene maybe about 30 minutes after another helicopter had been hit by a missile. Um, so how, how did this happen? Um, I, I believe it's certainly possible that he you know, reconstructed the story a little bit differently on successive tellings, and he ended up coming to honestly believe uh, that this had happened to him. But lots of other people out of out there wanted to call him, you know, a big fat liar, right. give him four Pinocchios. <laughs> There's a fascinating episode of uh, Revisionist History where uh, Malcolm Gladwell covers this ad nauseum, and and it just truly is one of those deeply unsettling. Like, man, he he could, he could be telling what he believes is the honest truth. <laughs> um, well, that and and that was an expensive memory mistake. I, I call that the the five million dollar memory mistake because he was suspended without pay for six months from his ten million dollar a year job. Whew. Yeah, I don't think the stakes are that high for me. <laughs> well, 
still, it's been, it must have been a really upsetting experience for um, you. I'm, I'm sure. It, it, uh, I, I've gotten over it, I suppose. Um, I have just one more question for you, and then I do want to make sure that Austin has a bit of time if he has any burning questions to tack on. But my, my question for you is a little more pragmatic, and maybe it's a little too philosophical, but at the end of the day, I think what I'm really asking as I'm stirring this around in my mind, what do I do with the information that you've provided with the reality that our memories could be at least in part fabricated? How has this affected your worldview, and, and really what do we do with that? Well, I, I, you know, when, when somebody makes an accusation, and I read about it because they appear on TV or their accusation is in the newspaper, uh, and they're accusing somebody else of something, but, you know, lots of people you know, respond to this by saying, oh, my God, that horrible perpetrator, and they uncritically accept the accusation without thinking about whether there's any kind of memory issue. Um, usually I will uh, differently listen to this accusation and wonder to myself, is, is this real or is this not real? Uh, and I think, you know, having a healthy skepticism and, and then looking for, you know, evidence, if it exists, or lack of evidence, um, that this might be a product of some other process is one is one way that we can avoid uh, doing horrible things to innocent people. Hmm. That's good. Uh, Austin, what burning questions do you have? You know, I, I just have a couple, I think. Um, I guess my, my first one is, uh, Dr. Loftus, why do you think that memories of this nature, memories that are, are being recalled in, in court circumstances and, and just normal circumstances. Why do you think we are so prone to expressing memories that might be false? Like what, what is it within us that is, is having us recall these, these memories that might not be accurate? Well, one, one, one reason is that we've been exposed to suggestive information. We've incorporated it into our memory, and it caused an alteration, a transformation, or even just added something to, to memory, and it feels like a genuine memory. And so we express it because, uh, in a court case, because we, you know, we'd like to see the crime solved. We want to be helpful. We want accountability. Uh, so, but it, it's also the case that sometimes we draw inferences about what could have happened or might have happened in a particular situation, and those inferences can solidify and start to feel like memories, and, and that's sometimes called auto-suggestion. So these are just some of the ways that people come to develop false memories that then that they tell other people about because there's a motive to do it. That's really interesting that you that you mention inferences because I, I think I am very prone to that. Um, I, I'll misplace something around the house and I'll tell my wife, hey, you had this last. I was like so confident she had this last because I just could not see myself being the last one to using this thing. And I'm, I, I, I infer, you know, that she's the one to blame for this. But in reality, it's probably me just misplacing something. So I like that word inference because I think that I think we are all prone to just making a, a, an assumption that 
what we are about to say or about to retrieve from our memory of that thing is is accurate or, or truthful. So I, I really liked your use of that word. Well, then you could, you could go one step further and start to even remember things that didn't happen that are consistent with your inference. Absolutely, and I think I have definitely experienced that. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other question is how, how do we protect ourselves? And if we even can, I don't know if this is even possible. How do we protect ourselves from retrieving false memories? Is there, is there ways to assisting us in not falling back to our inferences or our assumed truths? Well, if you're vigilant, you can sometimes, you know, um, try to process the, the newer information, you know, more more deeply and uh, with some skepticism, and you can uh, prevent the contamination of memory to some extent. The problem is that people aren't walking around this world um, in this heightened state of skepticism. Uh, so it, it's it, we in our experiments we can warn people, and that warning can be effective. Uh, to some extent, but out there in the real world, people are not walking around with warnings at the forefront of their consciousness. One last question, and this is the last one for me. Have you ever lost sleep over this question? <laughs> no, I, I because I've been studying memory distortion for so many decades, I, it, that's, that's not what I lose sleep over. What do you lose sleep over? <laughs> Getting a little personal there, Austin. <laughs> yeah. well, I, you know, I have the typical academic nightmares. That um, I have the typical academic nightmares that you know I'm trying to get to a uh, catch a plane because I have to go somewhere to give a a, a talk at a conference, and there's a zillion obstacles in my way that are keeping me from getting that plane on time. That, that's the that's a typical academic nightmare. Well, I gotcha. I gotcha. I believe in a way, uh, you know, this this show is really meant to explore and study the things that keep us up at night, and this doesn't necessarily do that for you because you have spent a great deal of your time studying human memory. It might be the thing that would itch in your brain if you hadn't been doing that, but uh, we are we are very grateful that you have and that you are uh, able to offer your insight uh, to us this morning. I'm not 100% certain that this is going to do anything for me when the head hits the pillow, but at least I have uh, just more information, and I, I really, really do appreciate it. Um, well, and, my pleasure. I, yeah, I enjoy talking to you. Well, thank you. Everyone go buy all of Dr. Loftus's books right now, and uh, <laughs> uh, we will make sure to give you a shout-out whenever this episode drops and send you the link. Thank you so much for okay, having Okay, great. Do. Yes, thank you. You have a great thank day. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. 